Well, good morning. morning. Welcome to Battleground this morning. If you're watching online, uh, welcome. We invite everyone to take their Bibles, turn to Psalm 62. As you're finding your place, we do plan on uh, next week, Lord willing, uh, being here for a Christmas service here on Christmas Day. And so we're looking forward to that. Doesn't happen very often, and uh, we're excited about that. I'll take a break from Psalm and and go uh, to Isaiah 9 there uh, next week. And then we'll jump right back in to Psalm 63 the following week. And so let's stand to our feet as we open up God's Word together. Psalm 62. This is a Psalm of David. Verse 1. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will you, will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. O my God, on my God rest my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people, pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. But put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. That to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to man according to his work. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you again to be able to gather here together. We pray for those that are not with us, some that are, some that are sick, some that are traveling to see family or Whatever the reason, Lord, you know, and we pray that you would be with them, uh, even if they find themselves watching online this morning, Lord, uh, to know that they are loved and they are prayed for, and that this word is for them this morning. And, and so, Lord, we, we come to you saying, feed your people, uh, comfort us, bind us up, give us what we need for that which is in our life at this point, so that we may bring you glory and so that we may be comforted in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So we have a couple of, we've been talking every week about key words. We have a couple of key words today in this. And you could even say three, but it's really two. Um, the word waiting. And then the word alone. It brings up another word that you're going to hear in the sermon. It's, it's in the text too. Um, this picture of rest. Um, you could almost say it this way, when, when you wait for God alone, what it 
produces or what it encompasses is rest. That's what it's going to look like in our life. It doesn't matter the situation. It's, that's, what, that's what it brings. Um, the theme of the Psalms, not just this Psalm, but many of the other Psalms, is not simply that God is our hope and safety when we die. The point of many of these, as this one today, is He is our hope and safety as we live. And, and, and come on, let's be honest. Isn't that important? To have hope for today and hope for tomorrow. And the picture here, uh, the illustration that I'll sort of be carrying through all of the message is that life sometimes seems like a, a giant funnel that has both good times and bad times and blessings and whatever those other things are there aren't don't seem like blessings they're all dumped into this one funnel and they they have to come out this end and sometimes it seems like they just keep too much of this bad things coming this funnel before we can process out the bottom you ever do that you ever pour too much oil and it runs over up into the funnel and runs out then when you turn your car on it Stinks. I feel like my life stinks sometimes because it's run over. Not, I'm not processing it quick enough before it seems like something else has been poured into my funnel. And now I've got to deal with this. What can happen? It's two things. Hopeless despair can set in. Or this seeking. Yeah. You can call it seeking security. Oftentimes, quite honestly, it's just seeking some kind of release. Something, something that will distract us from all this that's in our funnel that we really don't know what to do with. And we have forgotten to notice that the bottom of our funnel, nothing's coming out. Uh, something's clogged it. <laughs> I can remember, used to have to go get the funnel at the house when I was young. And daddy always told me, make sure the funnel's clean. Because if your funnel's not clean, when you pull in whatever you pour in, guess what's coming going down in the motor? Whatever's in the funnel. Uh, sometimes I think my funnel's dirty. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's what it feels like. Lament psalms are meant to help us process what's in our funnel. We don't get to pick what's in there. It doesn't get, as you get older, the things going into your funnel do not get easier. They get harder, so it's important to learn this. So, who is he talking to today, David? There's three people besides the prayer is to God, of course. There's the psalmist. There's the psalmist enemy. But there's also in here God's people. And so as he directs his own issues, what he's really getting them to do. Remember, this is the songbook of God's people. He speaks to God's people. He's trying to help them deal and understand that in spite of the danger they need to trust in their God. And, and what this has in this psalm that's unique is a calm confidence from the beginning. You don't always see that in the Lament Psalms. You see it towards the end, this calm resolve. But here we see it from the very beginning. And listen to this one uh, commentator says this. There is scarcely another psalm that reveals such an absolute undisturbed peace in which confidence in God is so completely unshaken, in which assurance is so strong that not even one single petition is voiced through the psalm. 
And so our main idea, if you've got your notes, if not, they're back there on the blue table. As, as we wait, we trust in God alone to be our refuge so we will not be shaken and so that we will set our hearts on Christ alone to do what is right. So two things we see going on in this psalm. Um, first is an honest question. He directs his question to his enemies, whoever they are, and we don't know who they are. The second and most of the psalm is this confident testimony. It starts with a confident testimony and it ends with a confident testimony. And so let's put it out of order. And I think you, I, I'm doing this for a reason. Let's ver, look at verses 3 and 4 first. Let's look at the honest question. Look with me at verse 3. The psalmist, which is David here, is asking, it, it is like the enemy is in the room at the worship service, and he's sort of directing it towards them. How long will all of you, so there's a, there's a group here, all of you attack a man to batter him, like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. And, and so have you ever been to a, a trial and after the guilty verdict, they have sort of the victim impact statements and you get family comes up and they're able to address this person that has done this crime against their family. This, this is similar, but it's more confident. It's this question of why or how long do you think, this is sort of the confidence of it, how long do you think you're going to keep doing this and get by with it? He's acknowledging whether it's himself or whether it's God's people. That either from their perspective or the enemy's perspective, it's like a, an old fence. All it needs is one more good push. And they would have their way. David marvels at their determination to destroy him. It even seems, as you look at verse 4, he's marveling at why they enjoy it so much. Isn't that the question? It's... it's it's like the bully in school. The question is not that the bully is a bully. The question for the bully is, why do you seem to enjoy that so much? It says they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. That word only needs to, really should say alone. There's just no way to translate that in our language. We'll talk about that in a minute. But that's the word that you need to have in your head. This is their plan alone. This is a contrast of pleasures. What they are taking pleasures in and what he's seeking to teach God's people to take pleasure in. They, um, they take pleasure. Those who take pleasure in knowing Christ are obnoxious to those who don't. It's this idea of let's just be inclusive. You've got to understand that's why Christians are always persecuted. Um, we we stink to the, to, the, to the unbelieving world. We get on their nerves. Uh, we make them angry. We frustrate them. And, and they are going to passively or actively attack you because of that. And sadly, this is what's sad. David had experienced it, and most of you have too, if you've lived long enough, that this happens inside the body of Christ. I praise the Lord. We have not had this. But many churches, I hear this story day after day from pastors. A group or 
Oftentimes, a family within the church decides that the pastor must go, and then their sole plan, week after week, with a smile on their face, as they sing hymns about Jesus and his blood, plot and plan and talk to destroy that man. That's their focus. That's their singular focus. That's the context of what's going on in David's life. Their only focus is to do it. They enjoy it. They love it. Destruction is their goal. This psalm, listen, is written in part to that person, to that group. And here is what, that's what he's doing. Here's what he's saying to that group. You've got a heart issue. So, so we need not the group's blame shifting saying, yeah, but you know, <laughs> dude, he's a, he's a dud. He said, no, 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 quit blame shifting. You got a heart issue. That's verse 4. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. They have weaponized their words in order to destroy somebody. The picture here as we get in the New Testament is a hypocrite playing a part. They bless the Lord. They sing, they're involved, and they're active. But inwardly, sort of around the dinner table, so to speak, they, they spew out cursings against God's man. Uh, he said, he's trying to teach God's people, when this happens to you, as it's happened to me, you must trust in your God. So this issue, whatever this has looked like in his life, has been dumped into the funnel of his life. He didn't ask for it, whether this was Absalom or his advisor or many other situations that probably we don't even know about. This has been dumped into either his life or has been dumped into God's people's life. And so, so David now surrounds this real situation with the, what we must do to deal with it so that it's processed right out of our funnel of our life. So we see surrounding it the confident testimony. So I want you to see that. So look with me at your, at your text. I want you to look at verses 1 and 2, and then also verses 5 and 6. I want to I read these together, and here's what I want you to look at. Notice the, if there's a distinction, and there is, what it is. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. We're just going to read it. It says, For God alone... For God alone, my soul, waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not greatly be shaken. And so remember, this is a song. So this is a repeated chorus with a twist. Now see if you can see what the difference is. Verse 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. So, what's the difference? Do you see it? So, punctuation is the difference. And the first one is this statement of confidence. Then he, then he tells us as he speaks to his issues in his life, he lays them out there before God and before and before the people, and then now he reminds them that you need to remind yourself. Do you see? It's the, oh, my soul. You see the commas? For God alone, oh, my soul. The second time he is speaking to himself, he was reminding this is necessary to process this what's going on in your life. You not only need to speak to God, you need to sometimes speak to God's word into your own life. 
because we can at some point stop believing it. And when we stop believing it, the funnel stops. He reminds this expectant faith, this expecting salvation that we're going to talk about. is the way the New Testament describes rest. So this waiting in silence. What in the world does that mean? I thought we'd been saying that we need to pour our hearts out to God. And now it says we need to wait in silence in verse 1 and verse 5. What does that mean? Does this mean we're just supposed to just be, you know, like most people think a man's supposed to be. We're just supposed to just keep a stiff upper lip and don't tell anybody when you're hurting. Don't tell anybody when you just don't whine about it. Suck it up, buttercup, kind of. Is that what he's saying? That's not what that word means at all. And uh, So I want you to see, because God's word explains itself, it be silent means this, be still and don't worry. Be still and don't worry. Stop. Calm down. Still yourself. God's got this. Turn with me back to Psalms 37 because this could actually be interpreted, uh, be still. Psalms 37 verse 1. See that word fret not? That's the same idea. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. He's saying, still yourself. Calm down. Stop worrying. Flip over now just a few pages from Psalms 37 to Psalms 46, and we'll see Scripture now explaining Scripture we oftentimes read um, Psalms 46, 10. But it's ten, the Psalms has a context just like every other book of the Bible does. And so let's reach up to verse 8. Psalms 46, 8. Come behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes wars to cease the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Do you see? If you do not behold him, you will not be able to be still. There is a beholding before there is a stillness. You cannot get to an anxious free life without beholding the works of God and understand He's our God. You need to stop and realize that He's our God and He will be exalted in my life because He has said so. This is the silence that He speaks of. It is the expectant trust, the standing on the wall and looking for God to show up in our life because He is the God of creation and He is our God. We need to be still. This seems to be sometimes, I don't know if you feel this way, when you read the Psalms, you read what David's saying and what he's doing, it could almost be like we can't quite reach it. Like David's putting the cookies up too tie up on the cookie jar and sitting there going, you know, I just don't know whether I can get there from here. I'm sitting there going, you know, welcome to the family. Scripture does not teach us 
things that we can do in our own strength. It teaches us things that we can only do in God's strength. And so he gives us the lament psalms to teach us how to pray, to how to depend, to how to be silent and rest. He's contrasting his situation. He's not ignoring it. He's not in denial of it. He's simply contrasting with a sovereign God who is in control. This alone, and this alone, is what's going to bring rest. Nothing else will. That pill won't. That relationship won't. Your career won't. You, go, you have to learn to wait on God alone. That's really the theme here. The problem is in the English language, you, can all, you can all, can't always interpret it to be alone. If you look back here, you see sometimes the word only. It's just how we had to make the English sentences fit. If you look back up, verse 1 could say, My soul finds rest in God alone. Verse 2, He alone is my rock. Verse 5, Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. He alone, verse 6, is my rock. He is contrasting all of that against His enemies who seek to destroy Him and Him alone. You see, the, you see what he's doing there? So these words he's picking are important to express what's actually going on and to express how he feels. Spurgeon puts it this way, to wait upon God or for God is the habitual position of faith. It's how we live. It's what we do. It's the way our funnel keeps processing and we keep living by faith. So what are we waiting for? Supposed to wait. Supposed to wait in expectant faith. What are we waiting for? He says in verse 2, it's for salvation. He alone, verse 2, is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Salvation just simply means deliverance. It's, it's good for us that though that we as New Testament believers always go towards the spiritual with that, sometimes it's bad, but most of the time it's good because it helps us understand what he's teaching us here. To wait in this way, the way this text is teaching us, to wait in this way for anyone else or anything else is idolatry, but to wait in this way for God is worship. It's worship. And this worship alone brings confidence. And it is the only way that we can find rest. We worship as we wait. Waiting is worship. It is what we must learn how to do no matter how we feel. No matter what's in the funnel of our life. It seems that we trust him because we do trust him. We have to trust Him for salvation. To become a Christian, you must trust God. But it seems to be when it goes to about, about our life to live, we, don't, we drop the alone somewhere along the way. And <laughs> say, I trust Him, but... Jesus seems to be sufficient to save us, but not sufficient to live for Sufficient to keep us out of hell, but not sufficient enough for me to forgive somebody that don't, doesn't deserve forgiveness. It's not sufficient enough for me to take care of me so I don't have to live always thinking about money. He's not sufficient so I don't blow my top or hold grudges or find myself consuming just like everybody else. 
to that, David says, no. We must wait for God alone, for he alone brings salvation. And he alone is my protector and my defender. Still saying that in verse 2. Do you see it? It's that word of fortress, fortress. We've been talking about that. With this combination of bringing the word rock and the word fortress together, he is a rocked fortress. I don't need no fortress made out of wood that the enemy can shoot an arrow in and catch my fortress on fire. That's what, we try, that's what we try to build, right? Stuff that can be consumed. The Bible calls it wood and stubble for a reason. Because it'll all be consumed one day anyway. By the way, isn't this the picture God paints of his church? That we are individual stones. We are this rocked fortress. God's people. Christ being the cornerstone. He trusts in God alone. This is the only reason why he's confident. Because the seasons of David's life is like the seasons of your life. It's mingled together with the hard and the good. You might want to call them the blessings and the cursings. Or whatever you want to call them. However they might feel. They're mixed together. But what we're seeing in David's life is a mature David. A David that's been through some of those. And so what we're seeing is is your faith, though given to you, also grows. It is part of your sanctification. It is, he has grown to be a more robust David in his faith. And so he says, I will not greatly be greatly shaken. He's not saying I won't be shaken. You go out in the ocean and you put an anchor down, you're, that thing's still going to move. <laughs> you're just not going to get capsized. You're just not going to be pulled into, the, pulled into the rocks. Look at verse 7. He says, I will trust in him alone. On God rest, there's that word. On God rest my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is from God. He is resting for something. My rest, rest on something other than myself. He's waiting. He's resting for victory, not merely for survival. Salvation is deliverance from something. It is also deliverance to something. It's not just about getting out of hell. Salvation is also about what we're delivered to. Simply the fact that I have more patience, and you have more patience than you did two years ago, is victory. It's God doing something in our life. If I was who I was 10 years ago, I could not take what I am going through the day, and probably you couldn't either. God is working. He is doing something, and we don't oftentimes see it, especially in our own lives. He is producing something. We're resting on Him for victory. We're resting on Him for glory. This is why He's piling on. This is like the kitchen sink for all David's words. He puts them all in there. Do you notice it? Rock. Salvation, refuge, fortress, glory. This is how David, in the midst of the heart of his life, glories in his God. He writes music and he puts them to words. Micah does that. Guarantee you, what does he do when he is stressed or in hard times? He's probably going to sit down with his guitar. We all have something that we can do in the midst of the heart that brings glory to God, that reminds us of what we are not in control of 
and what we must do. Notice verse 8. It says anything other that we are just supposed to be silent and not say anything during hard times. It's, it says, trust in him, verse 8. O people, pour out your heart before him. Why? Because God is a refuge for us. So silence, this silence is never a lack of prayer. It's just a lack of worry. It's not a lack of prayer. It's just a lack of worry. That's that's what we're working towards. That's what we want to learn how to better process these things of life through that funnel. So that what comes out is worship. Comes out is patience. Comes out is joy that has nothing to do with what's going on in my life. Trust in Him. Notice these up to this point has been His. It's my glory, my rock, my salvation, my fortress. Now He brings God's people into it, you see. Pour out your hearts before Him. O people, trust in Him. O people, God is a refuge for us. So now He's beginning that other audience. He has reached out and said, there's an us here. There's the people of God here. You, you go through what you go through, not just for you. You go through for the people that God surrounds you with, for the church that you are a part of. We go through it for the us, for the we. And we go through it together. He's teaching these, these people. To have it all and have not Christ is to have nothing. But to have Him, if you have nothing else, is to have all you need. So, verse 9 to 12, set your heart on it. Set your heart on it. Set your heart on God alone. Look at verse 9. It comes back um, to those people that are persecuting Him or, or God's people. Verse 9, those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. And the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. And so we remember our audience. David is contrasting the enemies, what they're doing to him, but ultimately the way he's finding confidence, the way he's finding rest, is to take his situation and contrast it with God. It's just why you need a sovereign God. I don't understand it, the church's church name, their old name of their church by free will or something. I'm sitting there going, no, if I have named my church by something of God, I want like sovereign grace, you know. I, 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 need, I need God. I need His immovable nature. That's what they're saying. That you've put all of who they are, whether they're the poorest man in the room or the richest man in the room, whether they live on top of the hill, whether they have power and influence and the ability to destroy you, you put them on the balance beam with God and they are lighter than a feather. They simply don't factor in. God outweighs them. His power, His character, which He's going he's to begin to tease this out. We don't trust, we trust in the Lord, not our own provision. You see, you don't really have to set out for wickedness. You need only to trust in something else, anything else than Christ. And wickedness will find you. And wickedness will overtake you. Just like it did this people. That's why he says in verse 10, put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If, if your riches increased, don't set your heart on them. 
Don't trust them. Your riches are not going to help you process that mess that's in your funnel. Just look at the people who have it all. Is it helping them process what's in theirs? So don't set your heart on it. This is not just about people that are suffering. This is also about people that have have everything they need. Saying you better not set your heart on that. Because wickedness is a hairbreadth away. Because wickedness simply begins when you set your heart on something other than Christ alone. To wait on God alone. It's to believe this. And this is important for David in, in his writings. That God will do what is right. That God will do what is right. How do I know? How do I know that God will do what is right? You know, we, we want it and we want it now, right? Verse 11. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. What can we see here about how do we know that God will do what is right in our life? Look at verse 11. God always keeps his word. We could spend a lot of time here. God always keeps his word. Um, Any of you had a parent that ever said, I'm not asking you to do that again. Right? I've heard that. Y'all have heard it. You know, something has had to have happened to you in your past to prove that what he, he says or that hurt she said has a consequence attached to it if you don't do it. Or else when you say it, it doesn't mean anything. It's a meaningless statement to say, you know, if you do that one more time, I'm going to... You're going to do what? You didn't do it last time. God always keeps his word. That's why we know when he says, I will do what is right... We can say, okay, he said it, I believe it. So unchangeable is God that he only needs to say it once. So perfect is his will that he can't err. So all-powerful his character that no one can stop him and frustrate his design for our lives and his, this church and his kingdom. Isaiah 55, 11 says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things which I sent it. God will do what is right because he says so, because his word is true, because he cannot lie. And God will do what is right because he has the power to do something. Notice he's just not all powerful. It belongs to him. That power. God's word has said it. What? What has God's word said? That power belongs to God. Revelation 19 says that I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. He's powerful. This is important. You see, for many of us have ever been to the point where we have our loved ones and we 
wheel them into, take them to the hospital, and they have to have some kind of operation. Maybe it's, you know, outpatient, and, uh, and maybe it's an important one. Maybe you've had a heart attack or something, and, or whatever it might be. But all of us have walked down that hall, and then they rolled our loved one down that hall, and then through those double doors, and what were we sitting there left there saying? You know, Lord, help my, help my loved one, help my parents, help my spouse. Lord, heal them, protect them in there, and above all, bring them back to me. For God to do that, for our prayers to mean anything other than just wishful thinking, He has to at least be powerful and compassionate. He has to have both strength and commitment. He must have both the ability and the willingness One guy says it this way. I love this. Power without love is brutality. And love without power is weakness. Power is the strong foundation of love. And love is the beauty and crown of power. Got to have both. Got to have both. That's why our government always fails. Because we don't have both. That's why relationships fail. Because you got to have both. This is why we must rest in God alone, because He brings both of them to pay. He is not only all-powerful, but God's Word says this, He loves me. He loves me. Look at verse 12. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. <laughs> it belongs to Him. Notice what He's given. Just listen to this, 1 John 3, 1. Notice what's given. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. God is so full of mercy that that mercy, all mercy belongs to Him. It's His mercy. And He gives it. And we are His. So He gives us special mercy. We are His children, the sheep of His pastor. His mercy is just like His power. It is eternal. It does not end. And it's ready to be revealed for those who wait expectantly on Him. And not something else to give you what only God can give you. You're made for Him. You're made for Him. God will do what is right because not only he has the power to do so, but he has the willingness to do so. That's why David says, I love this steadfast love. It belongs to God. That's his covenant love, which means sovereign love is a chosen love. It is a love that sets your affections on somebody and refuses to ever take it away. God will do what is right because his word says so. The word says that he is sovereign and that he loves us. And God also says he will do what is right because he is a rewarding God. Verse 12. He will render to a man according to his work. God is involved in his world. He cares about it. He cares what happens to you. He cares what you do to other people. He is involved in his world. God sees that people get what they deserve. That is simply a biblical truth that David's whole life and kingdom depended on it. 
He loved justice. Talks about it all the time in the Psalms. Proverbs 24, verse 12 says this, If you say, Behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay a man according to his work? According to God's word, if we go to the last book of the Bible, Revelation 20, the answer is yes, he will. And he tells us exactly how it's going to happen. Revelation 20 and verse 11 says this, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence and earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Verse 13, And the sea gave up their dead and were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, each one, accord, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So what David is saying when you back up and you, you process life in these ways, ultimately you'll realize this. Man can neither help me nor reward me in comparison to God. God has promised me he will do both, and I will trust in him. So what today? You know, the first question is this. What am I setting my heart on? Because what I set my heart on is my refuge. He proved that I used this passage the other week. You can turn to it if you wish. I'm not going to turn to it. Uh, Matthew 19, 16 to 22 is that whole rich young ruler conversation. He proved in that, in that young man's life, that, listen, that young guy answered all the questions right. And if he would have been a, a good Baptist, we would have just had him to pray the sinner's prayer and called him a, called him a Christian, got him to write it in his Bible. But that, person, that boy walked away from the faith because what he had set his heart on was preventing him from entering in the kingdom of God. You cannot set your heart on anything other than Christ. And this is critical. Come back to that funnel illustration. Every grace-filled blessing and every trauma-inducing affliction must be processed in your life. Time is not going to take it away. It has to be processed. It all has to come through. And it is, it is coming out the bottom and what comes out the bottom is what we are trusting in. What are we trusting in? Is it producing anxieties and depression, negativity, hopelessness, a pleasure-seeking, life-dominating escape? Or is it producing a growing in peace and joy, resolve? <laughs> or can we just be honest, sometimes it's a little of both. If you pull a small boat up to the boat dock and you don't tie it off and you try to get off, here's what's going to happen. Whoop. You'll find yourself in a, in a position between two things, one fixed and one movable, and you end up in the water. Such as it, such it is, trust in the Lord. He designs it 
that when we trust in something other than him, we usually end up in the water. And praise God for repentance. that He picks us up and puts us back on the dock. I struggled today whether to do this, but one of the things, actually me and Micah talked about it, that what happens oftentimes in the church is uh, we plan, we have a little uh, order of service. We don't put that in a, in a bulletin for a reason, and, uh, but we have one. Uh, we don't wing it. Uh, but sometimes uh, we can simply plan God, plan, plan the service and plan God right out of it. And uh, one thing it misses oftentimes is we don't have time for testimonies anymore. We've got to get out. We've got to go to work. We've got to eat or whatever. And those things are understandable. But as we close today, I would like to give you one. And, uh, I've promised you at times I would tell you how I'm processing my battle with uh, the cancer that I have and, and what it looked like, what it might look like in a given week for me. Um, we did have a, a friend that we know of that, that had cancer that died this week. I'm not going to use his name uh, because I don't have permission to. I'll just call him Tim. That's not his name. That's what I'm going to call him. Um, Tim found out he had cancer not too long before I did. And, and uh, I had somebody that called me from uh, Parkwood and just to see how I was doing. And he, then he said, hey, did you hear about Tim? Tim has taken a turn for the worse. And, like, you know, so the rest of the day I'm like, you know, what does that mean? What does it mean you take a turn for the worse? It's like you're going along fine and all of a sudden you're just like, it's like taking a wrong turn on the road. And, you know, what does that mean, God? You know? That evening, we get the message that Tim had died, and uh, it was it was not a good night for me. Uh, it wasn't a good night because you see, Tim's Tim's pain had a stopping point, but Tim's family's pain had a beginning point. You see what I'm feeling? As a husband or father, sitting there going. You know, Tim would have never chose that. But he found himself in it. So I, I wrestled with God 24 hours or so just with that. And, and this passage was, was in my head and I was, you know, wrestling with it. Galatians 1.24 says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And I'm like, what does it mean to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? You know, like Christ's suffering wasn't enough, and so he's got, yeah, you know what, i got to finish it or something? What, what does it mean? The New Living Translation helps me a little, helped me a little bit. It, it says, I am participating. I rejoice that I am participating in Christ's sufferings. And so as I wrestled with this, this question, I was actually driving in the next morning to, to work to my, to my little favorite study place at the coffee shop. And this question coming to my mind is, is Lord, is, is suffering necessary in our lives in order to properly display our all-sufficient Savior? So what is lacking in this world is not more suffering for suffering's sake. What is lacking in this world 
is the display of Christ's suffering and the sufficiency of it in this world. It's lacking. And so God chooses us. And we don't get to pick. And so, whether we find ourselves with great abundance or great suffering, we must display the sufficiency of Christ by how we live every day by faith and trust in Him. I'll close with this. Uh, Hebrews 11 is the faith chapter. He brings up Moses in verses 24 to 26. And he says that Moses refused to hold on to the riches and the status and the ease of life of being the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Instead, he chose to throw his hat in the ring with the people of God and suffer because of it. You say, why did he do that? It's just profound. A lot we could say, but in verse Hebrews eleven twenty six, 26, it said, He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And so, this morning, what reward was Moses looking to, brothers and sisters? Christ himself. And so he received it. And by the way, Tim received it too. And so will all those who wait on him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our all-sufficient Savior. He didn't have to come in the flesh, but he did. He didn't have to do it the way that he did it, but he did. He put on a flesh and moved in next door. He went through the same things that all of us went through, yet he never sinned so that he could die for us. And Lord, we worship him for that, that because of his resurrection. Everything he said about himself and about us are true. And so now, Lord, we come as your people, as believers, gathered under one blood, and we come to the tables. We stand and use our voices, our words like David is here. We use our words to worship you. We use our words now to help process what's in that funnel of our life. Our worship, Lord, you promised us that our worship will help us begin to process this. So that we may live in joy and peace and hope and rest when we go to bed tonight. Knowing that... You're in control. And so, Lord, now we honor you with our lips. We honor you with our giving. We honor you as we come to the table to remember what your son did for us. And so we pray that we would be worshipped as we respond to you. That it would be a sweet aroma. In Jesus' name, amen.